Well, last week, if you weren't here, we began a series of messages called Worship Wars. And I knew the association when, when it came to, comes to a phrase like that would probably be about, this is about some kind of big worship change that's coming. That's not at all what we're talking about, though that's always a conversation that's challenged the church throughout the generations. This series is really about the worship war that goes on in each and every one of our lives every single day. It's a series about idolatry, which probably sounds like a real primitive idea, right? The idea that that we would worship statues or something like that from the Old Testament. But what I'm finding in my life is that when it comes to sin, often sin is the result of idolatry, of idols that have crept into my life that have taken the place of where God is. And so uh, over the next several weeks, we're going to have this conversation about what it means to worship the right things, because my belief is we're made to worship. We are built to bow to something, whether that is God that we put on the throne of our lives or it's other things that we come to depend on. And, and I want us to recenter our lives as we come to worship Him each Sunday. It's also about the worship that we devote to God throughout our week. And so uh, let's pray as we open our time in the Word and engage this conversation again today. God, we, we thank You so much for uh, who You are, that Jesus is better than all the things Uh, that this world throws at us to worship and to put our allegiance in. And so, God, I pray today that you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our lives and he would take the rightful place as the Lord uh, of our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So what does modern idolatry look like? I found a definition this week from a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a pastor in London, and this is what he writes about idolatry. I thought this was real real good to sum it up. An idol is anything in my life that occupies a place that should be occupied by God alone. An idol is something that holds such a controlling place in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts me so easily that I give my time, attention, and money effortlessly to it. So simply put, an idol is anything that we find significance, but central in our lives. And because it takes that central place, we tend to center our lives, revolve, our, li- our lives revolve around those things. But idolatry has evolved over the years. Like I said, it's not this primitive idea of worshiping a statue. We always had a rule in our house growing up that if, if you go to a friend's house and they take you to church and there's a, a statue in the middle of the worship center, you run as fast as you can. Uh, that rule was around Kool-Aid too, if we ever showed up to a church that had Kool-Aid. But, you know, because it could be, you know, there's you know, you know how it is, right? Cults. But anyway, so we, we had these rules in our house around worship. And idolatry was one of those things I never came across when it comes to the primitive idea of Baal and Asherah and the poles and the statues of Nebuchadnezzar that the people of God were asked to bow down to, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I never came in contact with that. For me, idolatry has been more turning the good things that God has given me into ultimate things. Does that make sense? Like whatever created thing that we're given, it can be a great thing. In fact, what I find is I'm not really tempted to worship bad things. It's usually the good things in my life that I elevate to a place far beyond what it should be. Uh, But I love another way that a a church father used to talk about idolatry. St. Augustine used to say that idolatry is really about disordered loves. Disordered loves. Does that make sense, that idea? It's really uh, getting the ranking incorrect in what we give our, our our, uh, our love too. And our God's a God of order. In fact, order is the first action that he takes in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, open up to page one this morning. We're going to make this real easy. No, no Habakkuk to find, okay? Genesis 1, verse 1. I want you to see God's first act of creation 
uh, and remind us of this this morning. It says there, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. How many of you in your life right now, you feel like things are chaotic right now? Maybe it's a busy season. Uh, Maybe things feel disordered in some way. This description in Genesis 1 about the darkness and about the Spirit of God that's hovering over the waters is a description of God who moves over the chaos of our lives. That's an easy thing to forget, isn't it? Because when things get crazy in our lives, when things get busy, the last place some of us turn is to God. But in the verses that follow, God orders this chaos. He creates day after day, day one and day two and day three. He separates land from sea. He separates light from dark. He separates all of these things and creates order out of the chaos that's found in verse one. But I want you to pay close attention to the continuing order of creation that comes later in chapter one. It's in Genesis one, verse 26. This is what it says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. See, God creates humans uniquely, doesn't he? he? He plants in us the image of himself in terms of creation. And we were talked about to be rulers, right? To rule over the birds and the, all of creation, all of nature. We're in, to, to have a benevolent rule over that creation. We are co-rulers with God. That's part of the calling that God has given us. So there's an order to creation. The number one on top is God. And then there's humans who are co-rulers with God. And then there's the creation that's beneath that. That's the order that God gives. And the order matters. Because when creation is ordered properly, things go well. But what I've noticed in my life is when this gets out of order, that's when chaos begins to reign in my life and in the world. When idolatry occurs, I would say that what happens is we're flipping the order, aren't we? Instead of trusting God and worshiping Him in His rightful place, we begin to trust in things and in people places they should never be trusted. We flip God's ordering of creation and chaos becomes the result. And as the story continues, as some of you have read ahead perhaps, you see that's exactly what happens. Read, read uh, a couple chapters ahead. We're going to go from chapter 3, Genesis 3. You can see this disorder beginning to occur. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God Really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and For food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So in light of what I've shared about the order that God intended, God and then humans and then creation, we begin to see in chapter 3 what's wrong with this picture. I've never seen this until a few weeks ago. I mostly focused on what God had said and why did 
Eve not keep this rule that God had kept? But what I saw just a few weeks ago was, was how this disordered creation is what causes the chaos. See, God's calling the shots in Genesis 3, but all of a sudden the woman has this serpent that comes beside her, and she begins to take cues from the serpent that's supposed to be ordered below her. She's supposed to be ruling over this serpent, right? But instead, the serpent begins to tell her who God is, and it's interesting what happens as a result. The roles are reversed. Instead of letting God define the order, all of a sudden the creation takes the place it shouldn't take and tells humanity who God is. So the creation ends up ruling over Adam and Eve, and through the power of suggestion, Eve trusts the serpent rather than God, who had ordered things differently. So God orders the creation like this, right? God, humans, and creation. But when this first act of sin happens, what happens? It actually becomes creation at the top of the order. And then humans, and then God plays a much lesser role. In fact, he begins to be questioned about his motives and what was, he was really hiding, perhaps, from Eve. If you were to ask, if, if I were to ask you to tell someone this story, Genesis 1-3, through 3, the creation story in the fall, uh, it probably would sound a lot like I grew up hearing this story. The story started with God making it clear about this good creation he had created, and then he tells them, don't eat of this fruit of the tree because things will get out of whack, and then this evil serpent deceives Eve. She disobeys God, and her husband also partakes, and so the first humans in their free will that God has given to them, break this command of God, and now the world's in disorder. It's in chaos, and so it's often I've fallen into believing that it's, it's my job to reorder that. And I'm supposed to kind of assert things back the way they were, and maybe if I could get things right, then I'd be accepted by God. And with that story, most people in our world have seen God as a strict and punishing judge the prevailing view in American cultures. That's who God is. He's out to get us. He's going to find us more a picture of Zeus than it is the God of Scripture that we read. And what does he have against eating a piece of fruit? It's easy to read this story and question the goodness of God, isn't it? And if you'll notice, the serpent's conversation with Eve is exactly that question. Is God really good? What's he hiding? Maybe he didn't tell us the whole truth. See, the serpent tries to get Eve to question who God is. In fact, Genesis 3 is the first time that God's talked about in the third person. It's the first bit of theology that the people of God are doing. And it's not too human. It's the serpent and and Eve. But they're having a conversation about who God is, and that begins this question that leads down this path. Listen closely. I want you to hear this conversation again, not through the lens of what we've grown up with, but hear it again based on what the serpent's trying to do with Eve. This is Genesis 3 verse 1 once again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent's first move is to test Eve's memory, which wasn't a big deal growing up, but even at my age, I'm starting to have a little struggle, right? I know some of you, you're laughing because you're like, you don't even know the worst of it yet, but you get the point, right? Like he tests her memory. He's testing this conversation that had happened and trying to see Does she really remember what God said or not? Then we move on to verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Now notice the conversation is focused on what God prohibits in this story. That's the question the serpent asks. The serpent focuses Eve's attention on what can't be done. 
And this is key. Stick with me here for a moment because here's the problem with prohibitions. Prohibitions do not get the result we hope they will get. And if you're a parent, you understand this, right? When you tell your child no, that doesn't mean your child magically stops wanting the thing you say no to. Um, the other night, Holly and I were having a conversation with our seven-year-old Maddox, and, and Maddox loves sports, and so he's played basketball and football and baseball and soccer. And so we were asking what he wanted to do in the spring, and he said, we, we'd just gone to the uh, Allen Arena, and we'd gotten to skate, uh, ice skate, and he said, I think I want to play ice hockey, Dad. So we're like, well, that's great. We want to give you this broad experience. Like, that's probably a pretty good idea. So we thought it was a good idea until we found out the expense of a season in ice hockey. It was for a 20-game season for seven-year-olds, it was $1,000, $1,000 just for the league. And then on top of it, all the equipment, right? We're talking $1,500 to $2,000, and I'm adding this up going, we could pay for college cheaper than the scholarship would be at the end of this, right? So we were discussing it, and I said, you know, Maddox, I don't think it's going to work out. I think we'll need to go to one of the sports. And in that moment, when we said the no, it wasn't like Maddox said, well, I know you're wiser than me, Dad. Thank you for your wisdom. I'll move back to baseball. No, that no produced in him a desire for the prohibition even more than before we'd said no. It's amazing, like as parents, the things our kids fight over. All it takes is a balloon or a piece of trash for them to fight over, right? I mean, a toy they haven't seen in three years, one of their a brother or sister finds it, and all of a sudden they want it more than anything else on earth. And we can look at that and we can say, how foolish are these children? And I, this is a little awkward in first service, so we'll see how this goes in second. It's like husbands, right? I mean, when your wife says the Harley may not be a good idea in this season with budget the way it is, it just makes you say, oh, yeah, no worry about it, right? The boat? Yeah, that ends the, the prohibition, ends your desire for it, right? For you wives out there, right, the Disney trip you've been planning doesn't quite fit in the budget. All of a sudden, your husband says that, and you just say, I I trust your wisdom on that. Now, that's not how it works, is it? It's like the thing that's prohibited actually makes us desire it more. I was talking with one of my staff members this week about this whole idea and reading this text, and, and I won't mention who it was because I mentioned him recently a few times, and he didn't like that very much. But we were talking about this whole idea about prohibition. He says, have you noticed this box in the resource room? It says, do not touch. He's like, has that ever been a temptation to you? I said, I've never seen this before. He's like. Well, I got to admit, I touched it. Like, part of me wanted to, part of me wants to put a curtain up here during the sermon and have, act as if there's something valuable behind here, because this is what prohibition does. If it says, do not touch, we want to touch. If it's a no, it makes us desire the thing even more. Isn't it funny? We can point it out in our kids, but the same is true for us. All it takes is a no for us to desire something even more. I can't tell you how many fights we've broken up with our kids over this, but wonder what God thinks in the midst of these things. We think somehow what is on the other side of the prohibition is where life is found. We begin to disorder creation in order to seek those things, thinking that on the other side maybe there will be something we don't currently have. The prohibition causes us to be consumed with the very thing we're told no to. And when we're tempted to sin, it isn't this easy process. It, I mean, one more drink, we think, is going to be it, but it doesn't bring us any peace. One more peek at pornography isn't going to satisfy the desire. That man or woman you're flirting with who isn't your spouse, he isn't nearly as good, she isn't nearly as good as you think she is. There's only death on the other side. And 
And these prohibitions cause us to be consumed, don't they? And the serpent knows this. We've all had this conversation with the serpent, haven't we? Let's not kid ourselves and think that Genesis 1 through 3 only happened one time. It happens every single day in our lives. We get the prohibition and all of a sudden we think that somehow on the other side of the prohibition is life, it's fulfillment, it's abundance. And that's not what's on the other side. So the serpent makes Eve think that God's holding out on her, that on the other side of the prohibition is something that he doesn't want her to find because it might draw her away from him, and that's exactly what might happen. Let's read on in verse 4. Genesis 3, verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. All of a sudden, Eve thinks that God's holding out on her with the good stuff. And when we sin, we usually believe the same thing, don't we? Because Genesis 3 didn't just happen one time, it happens every single day in our lives. There's a power in prohibition. There's a power in no. And that's how we tend to think of Genesis 1 through 3, is Genesis 1 through 3 is God's no and humanity's uh, failure to heed the prohibition. In other words, we tend to believe this story is more about the serpent's lie in Genesis 3 than what God actually said in Genesis 2. So turn back with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2, because I want to I define this story by what God says, not by what the serpent says. That's the problem in the first place. Genesis 2, verse 16. Listen to this conversation that God has. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, people usually read this as a negative command, right? Kind of like the serpent says, what can you not eat? What's the prohibition? But go back, if you would, to verse 16. I want to read this again. What's the first words out of God's mouth? What's the command? And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. The first command of God in Genesis 2 when he's talking about the garden is, eat of all that I've given to you. Here's the abundance that I want to offer to you. There's more than enough for all of your needs. Eat. Enjoy. Now the serpent makes us think it's verse 17 that's all that God said. That's what we tend to key in on, verse 17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The first command is actually a positive command. The first command is to eat of God's abundance. God is a gracious God who fulfills all that we need. But what God also desires is that we avoid things that bring us death. And it turns out that God isn't the lawmaker who makes prohibitions. That's what we tend to think in this story is God's waiting to zap us. And so he leaves out this one thing, creates the prohibition, and he's ready to pounce. But I see God more in this passage as a loving parent. A loving parent who knows the natural consequences of the world he's created and knows if we go after those things that are off limits, it's not that he's going to cause the consequences, it's the world and the way it is. You know this as parents, don't you? You know what's good for your kids and you know what's harmful. You know the natural consequences of things and you're you're, you're trying to support them, you're trying to point them in the right direction, but you know that sometimes they're going to have to learn the hard way. So God's not this lawmaker who's trying to catch them. 
God's this loving parent that's trying to say, if you step outside the boundaries, it's not going to go well. If you live into a disordered creation and think that somehow this created thing is going to be greater than me as the creator and the things I have given, it won't turn out well. You see, death isn't a punishment, it's a consequence. It's a natural consequence of the way the world works. And this is the point that the serpent tries to deceive Eve about. The serpent tries to get Eve to believe God's holding out on her. The serpent's trying to get Eve to doubt God's goodness. He's trying to get Eve to believe that the creation cannot provide what the creator already has. And this disorder always leads to chaos. The story of Adam and Eve is our story that when we're confronted with forbidden fruit, there's always a serpentine presence among us to point us and to make us believe that what's behind the curtain is something God's trying to keep us from. But God is not the cosmic killjoy. The loving parent, he's the father, he's the Abba, he's the one who's pointing us in the right direction. And when we sin, we are always making a decision about how to order the world differently than God has already set it up. Will we worship the creator and trust in his ways? Or will we try to find life in the creation that he's created above him? Brings me to Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bibles open there with me, if you would. Romans 1. Paul's writing to the church at Rome, and we won't, I don't have time to tell you all that he's doing here, but he's kind of setting up the Jewish people for some pride so that he can kind of get them in chapter 2, right? They're all have sinned, all have fallen short. But he, he starts with a word about the pagans who are there, the Gentiles. And this is what it says in Romans 1, beginning in verse 21. <clears throat> for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. You hear that? They worshipped created things rather than the Creator. They, they didn't give glory to God. They disordered creation, didn't they? Trying to find life in these things rather than finding life in the Creator who had given these, him, them these things in the first place. And every time that happens, chaos is the result. Every time that happens, this is what sin is. It's not upsetting God. It's, it's He set out these commands. He set out these standards. And, and we think on the other side is life, but truly on the other side is, is death. Chaos is always the result. One of the worst things that can happen in our lives is for God to give us what we want. That's what it says in Romans 1, right? God handed them over. He gave them what they wanted. And what they wanted was the created thing disordered above him. And sin was the result of that decision. Be careful with the prayers that you pray. Because the dangerous thing is God might just grant you the thing you're asking for. And it might just lead to death. I want to challenge you this week as we think about this passage, about the chaos in your life, about the the darkness that may be there, which brings me back to where I started the sermon today, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. If you're, if you're ever in one of those periods, and some of you probably are right now, you feel like you can't get a handle on sin or you feel like 
It's just a time of chaos, of disorder, of darkness that you're walking through. Some of that's never, sometimes it's not our fault. Right? Sometimes it's the fallen world that we live in. And so don't hear me saying about every one of you that if you're walking through a difficult time, it's because of what God's doing. But, but, but sometimes it is a result of us disobeying God. It is a result of us stepping outside of his boundaries, of maybe thinking that life's found on the other side of his prohibition. And if you ever get yourself in that position, I would encourage you to try reading the Bible again. Open to page one. Because what he does in Genesis 1 isn't just a one-time act. He does it again in all our new beginnings. So let me read over to you this morning if this is where you find yourself. If you find yourself in a place, chaos of darkness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You've heard it said that baptism, in baptism we become new creations, right? Like the story in Genesis 1 is happening all the time, over and over again, when in our chaos we cry out to God and we say, God, would you do your work? The Spirit hovers over you in the darkness and in the chaos, ready to create order out of the disorder that we create in our lives. And so this morning, if you're one of those seasons, I want to encourage you to, to step back to Genesis 1. So back to that place. Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus for the first time. We would love nothing more than to baptize you into his name this morning. Come find us. We'd love to tell you more. But maybe you've made that decision and you realize you made a mess of things again. God is the one who hovers in the darkness. That act of creation is not a one-time promise. It happens again and again. I want to lead us in a prayer of repentance this morning, a prayer of giving back our, our idols and putting them in the proper place, ruling over those things with God again and trusting him to be the one who's on the throne of our lives. The sorrows and the, tri- and the triumphs, all those things, Jesus is better. We've sung that earlier. Let's proclaim that again in our prayer today. God, we, we ask today, we, we, we repent, we confess of those things that have become way too important in our lives. God, I pray today that you would uh, you'd move in the midst of our repentance, that you would hover over our darkness, over our waters, over our empty, and that you would, do your work of creation again. Make us new creations, God. God, for some of us, it's, it's wealth that we've put in your place. We've, we've found security in things that are not you. And God, I pray, I pray that you would be our security. For some of us, we put our hope in, in horses and chariots, but we proclaim again today that we trust in the name of the Lord our God. God, for some of us, it's even good relationships that we've somehow elevated to a place they shouldn't be. And and, and no one can bear the weight of Godhood, God, in our lives. And so, God, we, we repent. We put them in their proper place beside us, God. And would you, would you help us find wholeness and reconciliation? Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.